0: This morning's scripture reading comes from Genesis 15, verses 7 through 21. You can find it in the Blue Pew Bible um, in front of you on page 10 at the very bottom. We enter into this passage um, where Abram and God are having a conversation. So this is kind of the middle of that. Again, Genesis 15, verses 7 through 21. Please stand for the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Genesis 15, 7 through 21. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans, to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. He brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half against Uh, And laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. The sun was going down. A deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. The Lord said to Abram, Know for certain That your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions as for you you shall go to your fathers in peace you shall be buried in a good old age and they shall come back here in the fourth generation the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadamites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Gerashites and the Jebusites. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: Let me pray for us once more. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your holy word as it was just read to us. And now we are praying for your Holy Spirit to accompany the preaching of that word so that we might receive it in spirit and in truth, that we might receive it by your power, that we might come away transformed by your truth. So we pray all this for your glory and our good, and in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you've been with us this past month, you know that we are now in a series in Genesis going through the life of Abraham it's been very helpful, very relevant to study Abraham because his relationship with God seems to set a pattern for us. For example, the call that he received in Genesis 12 and his response to that call informs how we ought to respond to God whenever he calls us to go in a new direction in life. Or we've seen how the struggle to trust that Abraham faced in uh, chapters 12 and in 13 remind us how we're going to face situations where we're going to have to decide whether or not we're going to trust what our eyes see before us or what our ears hear coming from God's word. What are you going to trust? Your eyes or your ears as you hear God speaking to you, making promises to you? Or consider the experience of God's protection and God's provision that Abraham enjoyed in chapter 14. That blessing is also available to us as well. And the gift of righteousness that he received through faith in the beginning of chapter 15 that we looked at last week, that provides for us a pattern of salvation that is laid out in the gospel. So we see here in Abraham's life so much that is set before us showing us the pattern ahead of us and so in the same way whatever we're going to learn today in today's text is as well going to set that pattern so the question is what is our text all about well our, our text is about god taking all the wondrous promises that he has made to abram and cementing them in an unbreakable covenant here we see God establish a covenantal relationship binding himself to Abram and to his descendants. This, my friends, is what theologians call the Abrahamic Covenant. That's, this is where the Abrahamic Covenant is established. And it ends up defining the very characteristics of a saving relationship with God that applies to each and every one of us. And the key term here is the word covenant god entered into a covenant with abram not a contract no one calls this the abrahamic contract because those are two different things those are two different relationships a contractual relationship and a covenantal relationship are different things in a contract in a contract, two parties commit to each other based on certain conditions and certain obligations being met. You stick with a contractual partner. You remain faithful to that person, if you want to put it that way, because they have met those conditions. They have kept those particular obligations. And therefore, they have earned your loyalty. They, have, they deserve your commitment to that relationship. But, of course, in a contract, if your partner drops the ball, if they fail to meet obligations, then there are going to be consequences that they're going to have to pay. And that, therefore, frees you from the contract and any other further contractual duties. That's how a contract works. Now, I think we probably never describe it this way, but the reality is that many of us treat our relationship with God as if it were based on a contract. We treat him like a business partner, or perhaps maybe like a boss, like your employer. And so we enter into into this contractual relationship with God because we see it as mutually beneficial. He has goods and services, or he has compensation that can benefit us. It comes in the form of blessings, answered prayers, or maybe just, just providing us a general state of peace and tranquility in our lives. That's what we want from him. And in turn, we offer to him our devotion, our obedience, our service, and that's how we benefit him. It's a mutually beneficial relationship. It's a transactional relationship. Now, if you're not sure that actually describes your relationship with God, well, just ask yourself this question. How did you respond the last time you were disappointed by God? How did you respond the last time God disappointed you? Think back to when you were praying so hard for God to answer a prayer in a particular way, but then He he never did. How did you respond? If you grew resentful, if you grew bitter, if you grew despondent, well, it might indicate that you have in God a contractual partner. He didn't keep his end of the agreement, and now you feel like you have a legitimate gripe against him. That makes sense in a contractual relationship. But if it's covenantal, if it's covenantal, then it's different. Because you can't expect a a transactional, quid pro quo type of relationship where where I put in this amount of, of, of devotion to the Lord, and then I expect to withdraw a particular amount of blessing in my life. Relationships within a covenantal framework don't work that way. And that's why our text today, Genesis 15, I think is going to be so helpful for us. Because God's dealing with Abraham here is laying out a pattern by which we can now understand what a relationship with God is really based on. And it becomes clear that our relationship with him is not going to be based on a bilateral contract where God and man have mutual obligations that they they need to meet towards each other. We get here a needed reminder that our relationship with God is ultimately based on a unilateral contract that God initiates with us and where he is more than willing, willing to carry the load. He carries the load in this covenant. I hope you come away, friends, encouraged to know that you are worshiping not a contract-making God, but you are worshiping a covenant-making God. And so what I like to do this morning as we study verses 7 to 21 is the stress the importance and the significance of being in a covenantal relationship with the Lord. So I I see three emphases in this text related to a covenantal relationship. And if you want to follow along, look in the bulletin. You'll see an outline. I listed them there. First, being in a covenant with God offers you strong assurance. Second, being in a covenant with God calls for steady patience. And third, being in a covenant with God ultimately depends on God. So that's where we're going this morning. So let's start with the first point. Let's begin by considering how being in a covenant with God offers you the strongest of assurance. In other words, when God seeks to strengthen a promise that he makes to someone, he reinforces it by entering into a covenant with that person. And that this idea of a covenant, I I don't think is a foreign idea to many of us. And maybe you don't use that word very often, but I think you understand the concept behind a covenant. It's the same idea that any, as, as any man who is willing to, to strengthen and to bolster his promise to a woman, to, to love her and to protect her, to, to be with her through thick and thin. And how does he do it? He reinforces that promise by entering into a marital covenant with her. Now, you could argue What's the point of that? What's the point of a marital covenant? I mean, if he already loves her, if he already promised to, to be with her through his lips, like, why does he need to do anything else? Why do they need a covenant? The answer is for assurance. That's what it's for. A marital covenant offers a couple strong Assurance. What it does is that it takes a vague promise that I love you and I'll be with you. It takes a vague promise and clearly defines what does that exactly mean? A covenant defines the parameters of that love for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. A covenant takes a bare A bare-bone promise, it puts meat on it. It puts weight behind it. Intuitively, I, I think we all know how important that is. We know how a covenant matters so much in the course of a love relationship that it strengthens and it reinforces the surety of a promise to love you and to be with you and to be for you forever. We understand that it's so important. To not just say those words, but to enter into a covenant with that person. And that's why God entered into a covenant with Abram. You look at verse 7. Look at verse 7 with me. The Lord begins with a promise to Abram, a promise to give him the land of Canaan. And he said to him, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh who brought you out uh, out from Ur, uh, Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. So that, my friends, is God's promise to Abram. But Abram, as we saw last week, as we see still here, had some doubts. He had questions. Listen to verse 8. But he said, oh, Lord God, how am I, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Now, Jonathan was helpful last week in pointing out, as we looked at the beginning of chapter 15, how God is not offended by that. He is not turned off by Abram's doubts. He can handle our doubts, especially when they're not rooted in a sinful unbelief. But when they're more like the doubts of the man who who told Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. You can believe and still pray to God to help whatever remaining unbelief you do have. And so I think there is a difference between Maybe what you could call worldly doubt and godly doubt. And you can tell which type you're dealing with based on how you are responding to the doubts that you have. Are you settled with them? Are you just fine having these doubts? Are are, are you no longer seeking answers anymore? Have Have your doubts begun to morph into cynicism or suspicion towards God or towards faith and religion in general? Or, are you still wrestling with your doubts? Are you still asking the hard questions, trying to seek out the answers? And especially, are you directing those questions to the Lord? That's the most important thing. And that's what we see Abram doing in verse 8. So, if you have, friends, a hard time believing God's promises because you've been disappointed so many times in the past, I hope you see you're not alone. I mean, I can't imagine how many times and for how many years Abram must have prayed for a child. We know by now he's about 100 years old. Imagine how many years, how many decades he and his wife went through praying for a child, and yet all he received was disappointment. Or how he must have looked at this promised land that God brought him to And he saw all these warring tribes, all these warring kingdoms occupying it, fighting over it, as we read about in chapter 14. And he's thinking, whoa, this is is the land you've given me? So I I can see why he has lingering doubts, even as God did promise him descendants as numerous as the stars in the heavens. Or he's told him that, that, that you will have all this land as far as the eye can see, I'm giving it to you. Even still, Abram had his share of doubts and questions. But the key thing, friends, is that he brought them to the Lord. So friends, don't don't be afraid to bring your doubts and your questions to the Lord. He's not going to be annoyed by that. He won't be angered by that. You will not upset him. No, rather, he will welcome your doubts. He will welcome your questions, just like he welcomed Abram's. So look at how the Lord responded to Abram in verse 9. Essentially, he essentially says, "Abram, you have a tough time believing my promises?" Okay. Well, then let's hold a ceremony. Let's put on a ceremony. Let's establish a covenant together. God graciously responded to Abram's questions of uncertainty with a covenant. You see, in the ancient Near East, when two parties entered into a covenant, they would conduct a covenantal ceremony. And that's where they would sacrifice animals together, and they would cut these animals in half, and they would lay these cut halves, these pieces of the animal, side by side, creating a row in between them. And as the two parties affirm their promises to each other, all their obligations to each other, they would walk together together. In between these cut halves of animals, as if to say to one another, let the same fate be to me if I, don't, uh, if I don't keep my obligation, if I don't keep my end of the covenant. If I break covenant with you, if I violate a term of this agreement, let me be accursed. Let me be torn apart like these animals. That's The message being sent. That's the meaning behind this ancient Near Eastern Covenant ceremony. There's actually a place in Jeremiah 34. You might not be aware. In Jeremiah 34, verse 18, there's a place where the Lord is speaking to leaders of Israel who had broken covenant with uh, uh, with their king, a covenant that they made with their king. And you see an allusion to this same ceremony. I listen to what it says, Jeremiah thirty-four eighteen. And the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, listen to this. I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and passed between its parts. That right there. Which is the same ceremony as we see being played out in Genesis 15. With the same message being sent. And in verses 9 and 10, we see Abram preparing this ceremony, preparing these animals. He has a heifer, a goat, a ram, a turtle dove, and a pigeon. And he cuts them in half, and he arranges the pieces into two rows. Well, I guess for the birds, he doesn't cut them in half. He just puts them side by side to each other in two rows. And God is now prepared to walk between these rows of freshly slain animals, to bind himself in a covenant with Abram and his descendants in order to guarantee his promises. To the point that he is even willing to place himself under a curse if God were to ever renege on any of these promises or fail to meet a single obligation. God is willing to bear that load. And that is how committed he is to, commit, to keeping his promises. When he says to his people, I love you. I am for you. I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Friends, those are not just vague promises. Those are not, those are not just lofty platitudes. Those are covenantal vows that he makes to you. God is not like the the, the wishy-washy lover who promises so many things with his lips but never backs it up with his actions. No, he's more like a faithful groom who reinforces his promises by entering into an unbreakable covenant with his bride. God God is a covenant-making God. Thank God that is whom we worship. And that covenantal relationship, my friends, is your assurance that he is going to make good on all of his promises to you. But you have to be patient. You must be patient and wait on God. That's our second point here. Being in a covenant with God calls for steady patience. Because if you assume that now that he has made promises to you and backed it up with a covenant, if you assume now he's going to fulfill all of his promises according to your timeline, that he is going to just fulfill things according to your schedule, I'm sorry, but you're going to be sorely disappointed. Listen to what the Lord said to Abram in verse 13. Remember, he just promised all this land. He's about to back it up with a sure and steady covenant. But in verse 13, the Lord reminds Abram to be patient. Verse 13, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. In other words, the Lord is saying, I will fulfill this promise. I will give this land to your offspring, but after 400 years. I'm going to totally keep this promise. I will fulfill this covenant. Your descendants will inherit this land, but after a 400-year hiatus. And in the meanwhile, they will be in another land, and they will be mistreated as sojourners and abused as slaves. So this promised fulfillment won't be immediate. It won't take place even in Abram's own lifetime. And that's a direct implication if you look at verse 15. In verse 15, God tells Abram that he, you are going to go to your fathers in peace. You will be spared this affliction. You will die in a good old age. And that's good for him. But the implication there is that Abram will not personally experience the fulfillment of this promise to be given this land. He's not going to see it. It's not going to happen for him. So friends, this is why it's so hard sometimes to trust God's promises. To trust God himself. Because he he makes these promises to us. He backs it up with a covenant. But then he doesn't follow our timeline. Instead, he, he calls us to be patient. And the wait. In this case, he called for 400 years of steady patience. That's hard. When we hear God's promises and God's word, we expect immediate fulfillment, or at least within a quote unquote reasonable amount of time. We struggle with discouragement when just a few weeks have gone by and nothing has changed in our life circumstances. But what if? What if God's time frame is much longer, much wider than ours? What if he is focused on fulfilling in our day promises that he made to his people back in 1623? That's what a 400-year hiatus looks like. He made probably promises to, to some believers in 1623, and it's not until our day that they're being fulfilled. Are you ready for that? But let's be honest, I think most of us lack the imagination to think in such lengthy terms, especially when it comes to God fulfilling his promises. We live in such a busy age of immediacy. We're trained to expect immediate wish fulfillment. But God doesn't work that way. He's not beholden to our time frame, to our expectations. You don't know when he's going to do it. All you know for certain... Is that he will. Look back at verse 13. Look back at verse 13. Look at the first three words there. God says to Abram, Know for certain. Know for certain. I mean, those three words should remove any doubt. You can be certain. Not because you know when a promise will be fulfilled, because, but because you know who made that promise. Granted, it may take four generations before God does it. The fulfillment you're hoping for may not even happen in your lifetime. You may be buried at a good old age before that promise comes to fruition. But you can be certain that it will. It will come to pass. I, I, I think about George Mueller the 19th century British pastor who was known for his orphanage ministry, but he was also known for his prayer life. And his prayer life is what has always inspired me. I remember reading that that he prayed for the salvation of one of his friends, trusting in God's promise and ability to save even the most hard-hearted of people. And Mueller prayed for his friend's salvation on a regular basis for 52 years. He even went to the grave still praying for his friend's salvation. And as the story goes, it wasn't until a few months after his death did his friend finally come to trust in Christ. That's how God's timing often works. As we hope and pray for the salvation of our loved ones, friends, we need steady patience. Because often the reason why it takes so long is because God himself is being patient with non-believers. Look at verse 16. The Lord explains right there in verse 16 to Abram why this promised fulfillment is going to take 400 years. He says, and they, referring to Abram's descendants, shall come back here to this promised land in the fourth generation For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now, this one nation, the Amorites, were singled out, not because they were anything special compared to the other nine nations that they're listed with later on in verses 19 to 21. It's more likely that grammatically, the Amorites uh, is is functioning as a synecdoche. If you guys remember that in, in grammar class or in English class, that's a figure of speech where a part functions as representative of the whole. It's like when you say you want to break bread with someone. You're not just expecting to eat bread, right? You, you, bread there is representative for the whole meal you hope to, to eat with. Uh, or when you're counting heads in a meeting, taking attendance, you, you're not just focused on you know, just the head. You, the head is representative of the whole person. You're counting how many persons are here. So in the same way, in verse 16, The Lord is saying that the reason why he's not going to immediately give this land on over to Abram is because he is patiently waiting for the iniquities of not just the Amorites, but of all the nations in Canaan to reach a boiling point, to reach a a tipping point. Apparently their sins were not yet complete. Even though they are very wicked at the present, as we're going to see in subsequent chapters. They are a very wicked people, but it just goes to show how patient God is. How long-suffering our Lord is. He patiently waits until the nations have totally saturated themselves with their iniquities. And that steady patience... It's what gives more time for individual sinners to reach repentance. Friends, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some would count slowness. He is being patient towards sinners. But one day, one day when the land is completely full of sin, like a, like a wet sponge that could hold no more water Know for certain that God will displace the nations from this land and give it over to Abram's offspring. But now, because of this 400 years, because he's been so patient and long-suffering, no one should now interpret God's judgment as a, a flare-up of impulsive anger But instead, we should see it rather as a slow burn enforcement of his perfect justice. We may have complained before about the slowness of God's timing and promise fulfillment. But I hope you see how how much of it stems from his patience towards us, towards sinners like us. So friends, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? What promises of God that you find in his word, are you still waiting to be fulfilled in your life? I think those are some of the hardest ones to wait for because those are promises that you know are aligned with God's will. You know God wants those things to come to fruition because he says it in his word. And yet, for some reason, he has yet to fulfill them. So you're praying for someone's salvation, a loved one's salvation. Or or maybe you're just praying for the nations as a whole. You're praying for the great commission to be fulfilled. Or you're praying for yourself, for your own holiness, for your sanctification. You're you're praying for freedom and for victory over, over those particular sins that you've been wrestling with. Or you're praying for Jesus just to come back, to return, to to make everything right again, to right all the wrongs, to to make every sad thing come untrue. You're just praying for Jesus to come back. You know God wants to fulfill those things. You know he wants to fulfill those promises and he wants you to be praying for them. He tells us to pray for those things. And yet to to, 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 to this point in our lives, he has yet to fulfill them. His promises to save... His promises to sanctify, his promises to return, they're all incomplete. But friends, one thing we can draw from this passage is the assurance that though we don't know when he will fulfill these promises, we can know for certain that he will. He will do it according to his good timing. So be patient. And take comfort in knowing that you worship a covenant-making God. And what should bring you even greater comfort is knowing more about the unique nature of this particular covenant that God has established with Abram and his offspring. Because as, as I mentioned before, it's not a bilateral contract. This here is a unilateral covenant where God takes upon himself all of the covenant obligations, as well as all the covenant curses. It all rides on him. So friends, this is our third and final emphasis here. Being in a covenant with God ultimately depends on God. And that point is underlined for us in verse 12. So so right there at the point in the covenant ceremony, after the animals are slaughtered and cut in two, where you would expect both parties to now affirm their covenant obligations and covenant curses and to walk through the sacrifices together, we read here in verse 12 that a deep sleep fell over Abram. He completely passed out. He is out of the picture at this moment. And then we read in verse 17 when the sun had gone down and it was dark behold a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces on that day the lord made a covenant with abram you see what happened god as represented by that smoking firepot and flaming torch god made that ceremonial walk all by himself. He passed by those bloody pieces of sacrificed animals all by himself. Abram was fast asleep. He wasn't there for it. And that was intentional. That was meant to send a particular message. God was communicating his unilateral commitment to keep this covenant, knowing full well that Abram and his offspring would consistently fail on their end of the covenant. So the Lord intended to take upon himself all of the covenantal obligations and all of the covenantal curses. He was essentially saying, this covenant that I'm entering into with Abram is going to be unbreakable. His failures and the failures of his future offspring have no bearing on this covenant because I alone made that walk. I alone bear responsibility to see these promises through. I alone also will bear the penalty for any covenant breaking. That, my friends, is how committed God is to this covenant, how committed he is to his covenant people. That's what God's saying here. That's how unique this covenant is. That is how strong and sure this covenant is. It's because God has taken the entire weight of it and put it upon his back. He carries the weight of this covenant on his shoulders. It truly does all depend on him. And if you follow the story of Abram's descendants in the pages of Scripture, the story of Israel, it's filled with, with high highs, but also a lot of low lows. Plenty of failures to keep covenant with the Lord. The people of Israel are constantly being wooed by other lovers, by, by other nations, by other gods, by other idols. And yet the Lord stays faithful to his covenant. And he even renews his covenantal commitment on more than one occasion. The first covenant renewal takes place on Mount Sinai with Moses in Exodus chapter 20. The next covenant renewal takes place in Deuteronomy with Moses again, but this is when he's transitioning leadership onto Joshua as the people are about to enter into the promised land, another renewal of the covenant. And then after many centuries, the Lord renews his covenant once more, speaking now to King David, reaffirming his commitment to bless Abram's descendants and to be their God. And then a final covenant renewal takes place in an upper room in a corner of Jerusalem over a Passover meal between a rabbi and his disciples. And there, the Son of God entered into another unilateral covenant where he took the weight of it all and he carried it on his back up a hill called Calvary. But in that instance, As Jesus made that ceremonial walk all by himself, without any single one of us there, Jesus didn't just symbolically communicate a willingness to bear the covenant curses. He didn't just foreshadow a willingness to be slain like a Passover lamb. No, this time, this covenant was established by the shedding of God's own blood. There on the cross... Jesus suffered the consequences of our covenant breaking. If you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, do you see just how good and how glorious it is to be in a relationship with a covenant-making God, especially one who, who makes unilateral covenants with undeserving sinners like us? Your struggles, your doubts, your failures to keep your end of the covenant are not deal breakers. Because you're not in a contract with God. You're in a unilateral, unbreakable covenant. When the Lord made a covenant with Abram that day, it says in verse 18... To your offspring, I give this land. And then it goes on to describe a a, a rather wide swath of land found in ancient Palestine. Now, historically, the fulfillment of this promise didn't come to fruition until centuries later, at, at the height of King David's reign. But it's even questionable if the borders of David's kingdom, even at its peak, fulfilled the very promises made here. And as you read on in Scripture, especially when you get to the book of Hebrews, it's clear that David's kingdom didn't even fulfill this particular promise because the writer of Hebrews says that Abram and his offspring desired something more than just physical land, more than just the physical land of Canaan. And they, 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 they wanted something greater than real estate. They desired a better country that is a heavenly one, They were looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. Abram and his descendants, their hope was in a new creation, in a new heaven, in a new earth, in a new Jerusalem that comes down from the heavens. That's a promise fulfillment that's already started, but not yet finished. And so that means the offer still stands. The promise is still made available to you. So let me ask you, friends, do you have a better country waiting for you? When you, Lord willing, die full of years and in peace, what's coming next for you? What's coming next? If you don't know, if you're not sure what's next, then take this promise to heart. For those who trust in Jesus, for the people of God, there's a better land awaiting us. It's the same land that Abram was headed to when he died at a good old age. I hope all of you have the strongest of assurance that when you die, you will inherit a better country. That you know for certain that you will be welcomed into heavenly dwelling places. And the good news, my friends, is that you can. You can know for certain. You can have that assurance. Not because of who you are, not because of what you have done, but because of who God is and what he has done. He is a covenant-making God, and what he has done is he has made a new covenant with you by his own blood. You can be assured. Let's pray this. Let's pray, Lord. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for this word. We thank you for this assurance, this good news that you are a God who doesn't deal with us like employees, it doesn't just make a contract with us like we're just doing business, but you enter into a covenant, much like a marital covenant, where you are committed to us with an unbreakable, never-ending love. So thank you that you establish that and you secure that by your own blood on the cross. We can ask for nothing more And so I pray, Lord, that you will give strong assurance to each and every one of us that we can be in a relationship with you. We can have the hope of heaven. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.